Real leaders leave a legacy. They capture the hearts and minds of their teams. Their origin story puts the safety and well-being of their people first. Great companies ubiquitously have safe yet productive operations. For those companies, safety is an investment, not a cost for the C-suite. It's a real topic of daily focus. This is The Safety Guru with your host, Eric McCroskey, a globally recognized ops and safety guru, public speaker, and author. Are you ready to leave a safety legacy? Your legacy success story begins now. Hi, and welcome to The Safety Guru. Today, I'm very excited to have with me Captain Scott Cartvet. Uh, I should call him Scott Intake Cartvet. Uh, he is a former fighter pilot. He was with the Blue Angels as a commanding officer uh, and also a stunt pilot in Maverick. Scott, thank you so much for joining me. Quite an impressive background. Uh, welcome to the show. Eric, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be on. And uh, I look forward to talking about safety and some of the challenges that we face as uh, human beings in all workplaces. But it's a topic that you just can't beat the drum enough. Uh, to keep uh, our peers and our fellow workers and uh, human beings safe. Excellent. Well, let's start with a little bit about your background because it's quite the impressive resume. It's, it's uh, I think, every boy's dream growing up. Uh, so tell me a little bit about your, your background uh, all the way into the Blue Angels. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So uh, like so many people my age, I saw the movie Top Gun, the original when it came out in May yeah. of 1986. And my best friend and I told all of our friends that we were going to be fighter pilots. And subsequently, we both went to college. And I worked as an accountant for a while, about a year after school. And uh, my best friend, Bob, called. He went to ROTC uh, with the Air Force. And he said, hey, I got my pilot slot. I'm doing it. We said we were going to do it. And I'm doing it. And I said, OK, I'll do it, too. And I picked up the yellow pages and called the Navy recruiter, joined the Navy as a pilot. Ended up going through flight training, was successful, uh, selected jets, and uh, was able to select F-18s. And that's that was kind of the start to becoming a fighter pilot. Um, and uh, from that point, uh, was just cutting my teeth as a fighter pilot using the weapon system, which was the F-18. I was forward deployed mm -hmm. in Japan, uh, kind of the Taiwanese contingency operations. We were the China watchdog, the North Korean watchdog. <laughs> Uh, I came back from Japan and was an F-18 flight instructor uh, and also a landing signal officer. And for your listeners, the landing signal officer is the uh, pilot that sits at the end of the aircraft carrier and is an aide or a safety spotter, if you will, to ensure that the planes are coming in on glide path, on lineup, and in the proper uh, angle of attack or attitude of the aircraft when they land on the ship. Uh, so that kind of was foundationally where I uh, recognized the need and the importance of safety. So I went to uh, with the Marines to teach the Marines how to land on aircraft carriers at Marine Corps Air Station El Toro. We subsequently moved to Miramar uh, with the Marines. And then I was selected to become a, a member of the Navy's flight demonstration team. So, so tell me a little bit about the Navy and, and the discipline that, that comes in in the Navy, but also in the aircraft carriers. What you describe is just landing a plane on, a, on an aircraft carrier, very difficult. You've got an 18-year-old that's starting. How do you create that discipline where no matter where around the world you're deployed, you've got a consistent operation and a safe operation? 
Yeah, that's a, a fascinating cultural uh, safety ownership culture that the Navy is exceptional at because we take 4,000 sailors and we put them on the most lethal platform in the mm-hmm. U.S. inventory and aircraft carrier. And there are, let's say, 50 uh, airplanes uh, in addition to helicopters and E-2s, which are propeller-driven airplanes, Ospreys. So it is a very high-risk environment. And you have young men and women who may have only had the uh, good fortune of receiving uh, maybe a GED, right, a general education degree. Mm-hmm. Maybe academics wasn't their thing, or they may have been uh, high school uh, or I'll just say school dropouts. Uh, and how do you create a culture where you instill ownership of each other and the ship and the airplanes in someone uh, that is 18 years old and first deployed on an aircraft carrier? And you have to give them the ownership. You have to give them the authority and the responsibility to stop flight operations. And the example that I'll give you, Eric, mm. and this is true on all aircraft carriers, um, if a uh, 18-year-old who might be a plane captain is on the deck of the aircraft carrier and they look in their toolkit and they see that they might be missing a tool, sure, they have to have we have to have a safety culture where they don't immediately think, oh, I'm going to get in trouble. I need to hide the fact that I lost this tool and I hope I find it later. We need them to raise their hand immediately. Mm-hmm. We actually have them put their hands up in an X in front of them, like a giant X. Uh, to verbal or non-verbally communicate to everybody else to stop. And as soon as you see somebody that is putting the non-verbal X, because it's louder in aircraft here, it's got to be non-verbal. As soon as you see that, everybody else does it. And then all operations stop and we find out who created it or or stopped operations. We run over to, uh, in this scenario, the 18-year-old. And we say, what happened? They say, oh, I lost a tool or a wrench, and I think it might be in that F-18 because that's the airplane I was working on. And you have to have the, uh, a culture where you say, thank you. Thank you for mm-hmm. having courage and the integrity to stop operations because as soon as you punish that individual for their lack of responsibility, um, now you start hiding those sure. small safety slashes that over time can build up into a catastrophic failure or loss of aircraft or fatality. And so we are very good in the Navy at, at uh, providing the authority, the responsibility, and the ownership at all levels from the captain of the aircraft carrier to the 18-year-old and instilling in them the ownership of the airplanes, the ship, and the people. And how do you drive that? Because it's it's easy to say that. A lot of organizations talk about it. I, I I lived in the aviation space where that's expected as well. But in a lot of other industries, there's always a questioning element, right? If, if that decision, if I stop work and I say I'm not prepared, and if I had made a mistake as part of it, and there's a repercussion, which in some cases in business can be hundreds of thousands of dollars, it's very yeah. tempting to go, let's hide it. Nobody will figure it out. Right. And so, uh, one, you not only have to say it, you actually have to believe it. Mm-hmm. And it might take a period of time. You know, when you take command of, an, of a fighter squadron or a ship uh, in the military, uh, it's only for a short period of time. 
you're not a CEO <laughs> for 5, 10, 15 years. So right. you have a short period of time to establish your culture and instill your values and your belief structure, uh, the integrity, the principles, and the character that you want to set for the organization. And it has to happen pretty rapidly. Uh, and so you not only have to say it, you actually have to live it. Um, and so uh, an example that I will give really quickly, and this was the year that we won the safety S in the F-18 squadron that I had command of. Uh, we went 486 days over the course of two deployments with no alcohol-related incidents. And mm-hmm. so the mm-hmm. same safety ownership culture that we had on the ship and in the air wing, I wanted to instill off-duty so that when we were in port, we were still taking care of each other in a safe environment. And I said, look, if you're going to go out and uh, have a hootenanny and do a little bit of drinking, <laughs> one, we have to watch out for each other. Two, um, don't drink and drive. Don't drink and drive. Don't drink and drive. Don't drink and drive. And if you, and if you get a cab, uh, I will pay for it personally out of my pocket. Non-government money, my money. You bring the receipt in, and I will uh, immediately stroke you a check or Venmo you in this case. Uh, <laughs> and uh, sure enough, one of our sailors came in on a Monday. He handed me his receipt for 50 bucks. And I Venmoed him the money. I immediately stopped operations, called everybody together, and mm-hmm. and honored him for doing the right thing, which right. was taking the cab. And and it, but I also had to back it up with my actions and do what I said I was going to do to prove to them that it wasn't me uh, really seeing if they were drinking. Right. I didn't I didn't care about that. I wanted them to live their lives, but I had to back it up with action. Sure. Uh, and I really think that and, and not patting myself on the back because it took 250 of us to earn that safety. Yes. But it was that culture of living and doing what we said uh, to take care of each other. Uh, and, and once you have that culture, then somebody new shows up, an 18 year old who just checks into the unit. And that's the culture that they and then it just. It, it, it can live on until another leader comes in and uh, either makes it even better or for some reason uh, erodes that culture. Mm, I agree. Hey, and how does training come into the equation? How does standards and expectations complement this, right? Because yeah. there's more to just saying these are the values and I need to to stop work, right? Yeah, so let's pivot to the Blue Angels a little bit. Because sure. They have the highest standards of any organization I have ever been a part of. And uh, they they hold each other accountable to those standards. And it's really as simple as, uh, you know, the pens, that the autograph pen or the paperwork pen that we keep in our blue suits have to be in a very specific pocket. When we talk to people uh, at the crowd line, we can't wear our sunglasses. Uh, we have to take, our, mm. we have to make eye contact. Um, and so there's little small things like that that they don't necessarily tell you right up front, but uh, it costs you five dollars if you fail to meet the standard. And when you first join the team, it's costing <laughs> you fifty, sixty, seventy dollars a day. <laughs> but then you learn exactly what the standards are, and uh, and and it takes very short period of time to realize that what they're teaching us is that the discipline and the attention to the minute detail, and not only for the pilots, 
because we need that attention to detail when we're flying, but our mechanics need the attention to detail when they're working on the planes. The supply corps needs the attention to detail when they're ordering the right parts. Uh, our administrative department needs the attention to detail when they're uh, submitting the paperwork so our sailors get paid. And so everybody has to have that attention to detail. And that service, the customer service to each other uh, mm-hmm. and hold each other to that standard. Uh, and with that comes the debrief, Eric. And and so you have to be able to debrief somebody when they don't meet the standard. One, you have to have the standard set. Yep. So this is what we expect. And then if somebody doesn't achieve it and there's a gap between the expectation and the performance, you have to be able to debrief that. Most human beings, and I talk a lot about this uh, when I consult companies, um, it, there's an ego problem there. Mm-hmm. People perceive the debrief as some form of punishment and they get defensive to have yeah. failed to meet expectations. And on the Blue Angels, I realized that somebody wasn't punishing me when they debriefed me or telling me that I was incapable. In fact, it's the exact opposite. When someone takes the time to debrief you, up to the standards, they're actually telling you that they believe that you have the capability to achieve the standard or exceed the standard. And once you realize that when you're being debriefed, it's because somebody believes in you and they know that you can perform at a higher level, then you can't get debriefed often enough. Right. You you crave that feedback to improve and accelerate your performance. It, it, very similar to the, the concept of radical candor as well of if I care about you, then I'm, I'm and I believe in your potential, then I deliver feedback in a different way. But you're absolutely correct. Many times I've seen conversations even between senior executives where they're giving feedback on how to improve and then they're trying to justify as opposed to just say, it's not, you're not losing your job. You're not, it's not impacting your performance bonus. This is just tips and ideas on how you can get better. Yes. And what I, what you describe is, is really key. It's, it's really, how, how do you have the conversation? So you get to your optimum, your optimal best version of yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and in that, when somebody is debriefing you, the, the only mm-hmm. really appropriate response is thank you. We immediately, it's our human behavior to want to defend. So Eric, if you were debriefing me on something, I would want to hear you. And then I would want to defend why I made the decision that I made or explain to you what happened. That that just takes time and gets into what we would call a circular conversation because now I'm defending myself. I just say thank you and I can take your input and I can make myself better or if the feedback uh, didn't meet the scenario, then mm-hmm. I know that, but I don't necessarily need to explain that. I just need to take your input, recognize that you believe in me, let go of my ego, and then choose to incorporate it if I believe it will help me or improve or not. And I hate to make mm-hmm. it that simple, but the ego piece is significant. Um, yeah. For sure. And once you let go of the ego, then you can really, really, really accelerate your performance. You said something a few minutes ago that really caught my attention. I I expected when you talked about setting the high standards in the Blue Angels, I expected if you didn't do something, 
that would be some form of punishment. Uh, instead, it's the $5, which is often a ha-ha joke, but still sends the message. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about how it's done, because I've seen this where somebody would, uh, as an example, every time you were late for a meeting, it was a, a buck a minute uh, for your delay. And it went to charity. So it wasn't for profit to somebody, sure. but he sent a message very quickly as opposed to chastising somebody for being five minutes late, embarrassing them. It was just a donation jar, but it drove the message very quickly. Yeah, I think it does drive it quickly. And so the five dollars, uh, it, 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 when you are uh, hemorrhaging money to learn, <laughs> that is a behavioral tool, right? The carrot and the stick. It's a little bit more of a stick model. Uh, our money went to uh, squadron social functions. Uh, <laughs> the debriefs are never a personal attack. It is just professional development. Uh, but it, it's interesting. And that dollar being laid to a meeting, and this was another great thing uh, that I learned in the Blue Angels. So the briefs always started on time. The debrief started on time. When, when the time started, that's when the meeting started. And the idea was uh, respect out of each other. So there were 16 officers on the team that uh, were at every brief and debrief. And if you waited one minute for one person to show up, you really just wasted 15 minutes because there mm -hmm. were 15 people that showed up on time. And so I took that philosophy into F-18 command and I would set up department head meetings or uh, uh, operational meetings that we had consistently every week, safety meetings, operational meetings, maintenance meetings. And we would always start them on time. And I made the department heads that worked for me crazy initially because they said, well, not everybody could be there. And I said, well, if we wait until everybody can be there, it's going to be a month from now. And so mm -hmm. they can send a representative, which gives depth of uh, leadership and, and uh, provides training for subordinates. And I said, just because they can't be there, that's okay. But they need to at least send a representative. And mm -hmm. all you have to do is start on time once or twice. And then the person walking in late will realize that when you say you're starting on time, you, you actually mean it. But right. as soon as you say, hey, let's wait for everybody, you're wasting the time of the people that were on time at the expense of the person that was tardy. And so whether it's a dollar or just, hey, hack, the time is 0930 and we are starting, um, that gets the point and in, in the whole command or organization will pick up on that. This episode of the Safety Guru Podcast is brought to you by Propolo Consulting, the leading safety and safety culture advisory firm. Whether you are looking to assess your safety culture, develop strategies to level up your safety performance, introduce human performance capabilities, re-energize your BBS program, enhance supervisory safety capabilities, or introduce unique safety leadership training and talent solutions, Propolo has you covered. Visit us at propolo.com. So in the Navy, as well as Blue Angels, training is a huge component of uh, the onboarding. What's the rule of thumb around training? When is it too enough? Is there such a thing as enough, not enough? Um, because a lot of organizations struggle with training as a cost, right? And they're trying to minimize the cost in that investment. Not the case in the Navy, not the, the case in the aviation space. Um, so tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, it's interesting. I think um, 
and not necessarily even high risk organizations. But let's talk about like you know companies that uh, do high power line or uh, mm-hmm. uh, high voltage uh, electrical work, uh, railroads, the airlines. Uh, those organizations, large organizations that have to train to maintain a level of safety. Uh, I'm sure you've talked a lot about the normalization of deviation on your podcast, right? And so the balance between training to towards perfection and safety and the expense, uh, at what point does management or the people that are responsible to the shareholders say, well, Nothing has happened, so we are training good enough. And and now you are prioritizing shareholder budget, return mm-hmm. on investment over safety. And that's when you really need to start listening to the people that are actually doing the work and ask them what they need to find out where the safety gaps are because they will tell you for sure. Um, and so it's a really fine leadership balance between when are you, can you really be overtrained? Probably not. The Navy SEALs would say absolutely not. You can't be trained <laughs> enough. Um, but at some point, you actually have to stop training and operate. But even in operations, there is an opportunity to learn and take what you're learning from the operation, wrap it back into the training so that you can minimize the risk uh, while also improving the performance and execution of the organization. When I think of training, one of the things that to me is apparent, particularly in aviation, compared to what I see in a lot of businesses, is often people see training as a one-time thing. So it's, I'm onboarding you and I give you initial training, essentially. Uh, what I see in aviation, and I'm assuming uh, in the Navy is exactly the same, if not even higher, is this continuous training. So even if there was a near miss, as an example, if it gets to a certain threshold, you're going to run through simulations that will recreate what happened to somebody else at some point. So tell me a little bit about that, because that refresher piece to me is really key to to the focus and learning, but also not getting complacent. Sure. And so what's interesting about that, uh, the commercial airlines have to train their pilots. They come through a a training center or simulator training every nine months. And I think most uh, non-aviation people would be blown away to know that the pilot of their Mm. airport goes through training every nine months, two days of training, to go through what we would call non-normal, non-routine scenarios and even extreme scenarios so that in the event it ever actually happened, they would have some muscle memory some procedural recall to overcome the amygdala hijack and the startle effect because uh, you have to override the fight, flight, or freeze. Right. So aviation is great at that. And that continual continuous training is really important. It drives the point home. There's always something that you can learn from it. And I think that that aviation philosophy is spreading. I know that uh, the uh, health industry uh, and surgical units are taking on board the idea of aviation briefs and debriefs, checklists to ensure things are done correctly. Uh, and so I know that there are a lot of industries that do that. But think about straight up corporate America. I'll just take some finance organization as a hypothetical, right? Maybe not high risk, uh, but they do continual training where they are talking about, uh, you know, diversity, equity and inclusion, uh, sexual harassment, and those things that have to be continually brought 
back up to the forefront uh, of the mind to ensure that people are uh, not continually thinking about it, but trained to a level of awareness that is important. Sure. Um, and so I, I think the concept of continual training, as long as it's refreshed, I think that's an important piece, right? Because you can't just play the same video from <laughs> years ago because uh, nobody will pay attention, right? And it actually right. has a negative effect. Um, but using real-world examples in your scenarios, uh, which breeds transparency, lends credibility, uh, where everybody can learn from something that happened in your organization. That's the best kind of continual training uh, right. for any organization. Uh, phenomenal topics. And I think that the element of training in terms of what you describe is, is something, at least for, for high-risk roles, I think is an important one to do that refresh in terms of refreshing. And then the other element is the scenarios, that the, the working through scenarios where something went wrong as opposed to just getting an email saying, hey, so-and-so had this issue and this is how they dealt with it. It becomes a recurrent training and, and, and really walking through different scenarios I think is really, really key. Eric, I have found that facilitated experiential training, even if it's yeah. scenario-based, uh, trumps computer-based training, yeah. certainly emails. Uh, all day, every day, and and people will generally respond to that in-person, facilitated, round-table experiential training because mm-hmm. now they're learning from each other and sharing their stories. And once you get people sharing their stories, which were good in aviation, right? There I was. <laughs> but there's a tremendous amount of learning that takes place in the there I was type of scenarios. You touched on something briefly a few minutes ago around safe today, not tomorrow. Tell me a little bit more, because I think that is something a lot of organizations struggle with, because in safety, often there's an absence of a leading indicator that tells you when you're, when there's deviation that's starting to be normalized in the process. Tell me a little bit about what, what you mean by safe today, not tomorrow. Yeah, so you could have a level of training uh, that is uh, degraded due to cost, due to budgetary constraints. And uh, after, at, you know, at the end of a quarterly result, you could say, well, our safety record is still 100% and we reduced our budget. Therefore, we're training to the proper level. And so maybe we could cut a little bit more and mm-hmm. save some more money in training to help our bottom line. And I have worked with companies where I have seen that happen and mm-hmm. it, and you can hear the rumblings among the workers that are actually performing the high risk jobs and as soon as that happens you know that you have a gap and you need to listen to them to find out what they need and and so the answer that this is good enough or it hasn't happened Therefore, we justify the budget cut to the training department or to learning development. That's a normalization of deviation where, uh, you know, just like the space shuttle, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the, the rocket booster had had a, a O-ring leak 14 times, but it had mm-hmm. never exploded. Therefore, the risk of explosion was minimized when, in fact, that was not the case. Just because you flip the coin 10 times and it lands on heads 
doesn't mean it's going to land on heads the 11th time. The risk is the same uh, on the 15th launch, and that's when the O-ring failed, even though there were people screaming with that problem. And I'm sure you've analyzed that a lot, but that normalization of deviation, you have to step and make sure that you're not falling into the cognitive bias trap where plant continuation bias, overconfidence bias, the expectation bias, where it's Mm -hmm. worked before, therefore it will continue working. I think as leaders, we have to step back and go, okay, where is our risk? And have we cut back too far? What's the risk to the operation? And if you want to know where the risk of the operation is, go talk to the operators. They'll tell you exactly Mm -hmm. where the risk of the operation is. Yeah, I think that's a really important point because it's not you can't save money. Right. But you've got to save money in the right places. So, so it's not that you have to be the highest cost operator. Uh, but the, the flip side is the lowest cost operator isn't necessarily the answer. Because uh, I've heard that somebody say, well, in this particular industry, the lowest cost operator is the safest operator. And I'm like, but that doesn't mean it's a correlation. That doesn't mean this causality. It just means maybe they've got very good operational discipline and and they're good at it. They may be lower cost because of that operational discipline and they're tighter on safety, but you can also arrive at the lowest cost through cost cutting, and we know what goes horribly wrong then. Yeah, absolutely. That's uh, the, the causality. They they try to tie two things together that actually aren't related. And on that cut piece, I would tell the leaders that are listening to the podcast, go to the same operators and say, where can we cut costs? What do you recommend? Where's the excess? They'll tell Correct. you, right? They'll tell yes. you what they need, and they'll tell you what they don't need. Um uh, if if the leader's willing to listen anyways. <laughs> so tell me about your book, Full Throttle from the Blue Angels to Hollywood Stunt Pilot. Tell me a little bit about why somebody should pick up that book. Yeah, so, uh, <laughs> well, I appreciate the book plug. So I have had a very fortunate career, as we have talked about here. And when I got asked to fly as a stunt pilot at Maverick, the most common question was, how did you get to do that? And over the course of my career, how did you get to fly F-18s? How did you get to fly for the Blue Angels? How did you get to go on five combat tours? How did you get to stand up the first stealth fighter squadron in the Navy? How did you get to fly for Maverick? And so um, I I got asked that enough that uh, I had to boil it down to really three things. I say yes to opportunity uh, because saying yes opens doors. And Mm -hmm. I am not afraid to learn from my errors. Uh, I talk about embracing failure. It's really about embracing mistakes and failures, letting go of your ego and willing to learn. And I ask for help. Uh, On that same NASA subject, we were talking about normalization and deviation with the Challenger. I actually applied to NASA once, and all my friends said, intake, you're never going to be an astronaut. You're not a test pilot. You don't have an engineering degree. You're an accountant. It's never going to happen. And I said, well, let me put it this way. NASA is never going to call me out of the blue and offer me a position to be an astronaut. So I have nothing to lose. All they can do is bring good news by saying you've been selected to be an astronaut. Because if they say, no, you're not an astronaut, I'm already not. (laughs) Right. So uh, that's kind of been my philosophy. And then my dad was really the inspiration. He was a submariner in the Navy. And he has always said, Scott, your stories are just outrageous about naval aviation, you should write a book. Uh, And my dad is still with us. He turns 86 this year, but he's got dementia. And I thought, you know what? I am going to put pen to paper and I'm going to tell my journey from having watched Top Gun as an 18-year-old in 1986 to 33 years later flying as a stunt pilot in the sequel 
uh, and share that journey. Uh, and, and hopefully people of all ages will find it inspirational, uh, but also maybe take a tool uh, and a life lesson uh, from the book as well. Excellent. Well, Scott, thank you so much for coming on the, on the show, sharing your experience from the Navy, from aircraft carriers, uh, Blue Angels, to now being a, a commercial uh, pilot and, and your recent book. I really appreciate the time you took with us. Really, really great insights in terms of building a good discipline from a very uh, early stage. Thank you. I appreciate that, Eric. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Safety Guru on C-Suite Radio. Leave a legacy. Distinguish yourself from the pack. Grow your success. Capture the hearts and minds of your teams. Elevate your safety. Like every successful athlete, top leaders continuously invest in their safety leadership with an expert coach to boost safety performance. Begin your journey at execsafetycoach.com. Come back in two weeks for the next episode with your host, Eric Makrowski. This podcast is powered by Propolo Consulting.